Good morning, everyone. It's the 23rd of September, Saturday morning. And Mark is continuing to read through the Doctrine of Election by Arthur W. Pink. He's ready for Chapter 10, Part 3 this morning. And like I say every morning, if you're interested in obtaining this book, it'd be a great addition to your library. If you go to greatchristianbooks.com, you can get a copy of this book. It's a very much a jewel, or I wouldn't be spending so much time having Mark read it. Um, how many books are written, 200, over 200 pages, that have to do solely with the election of God? So I'll turn this over to Mark. Doctrine of Election, Chapter 10, Part 3. The Doctrine of Election, Chapter 10, Part 3. Our first reply to such an objection is that it is quite beside the point. The only matter which needs deciding at the outset is what saith the Scriptures. The election be clearly taught therein that settles the matter for the child of God. Settles it once and for all, whether he understands it or no, he understands that God cannot lie, and that his word is true from the beginning. Psalms 119.160 If his opponent will not allow this, then there is no common ground on which they can meet, and it is utterly futile to discuss the matter with him. Under no circumstances must a Christian allow himself be drawn away from his stand on the predmal rock of holy writ, the sin, the treacherous ground of human reason. Only on that high plane can he successfully withstand the onslaughts of Satan. We read Matthew 4 and observe how Christ vanquished the tempter. The holy word of God does not come to us craving acceptance of the bar of human reason. Instead, it demands that human reason surround itself to, to its divine authority and receive unmurmuredly its errant contents. It emphatically and repeatedly warns men that if they despise his authority and reject his teachings, it is to their certain eternal undoing, and it is by that word each of us shall be weighed, measured, judged in the day to come, and therefore it is a part of human wisdom to bow to and thankfully receive its inspired declarations. The supreme act of right reason, my reader, is to submit unreservedly unto the divine wisdom and accept with childlike simplicity the revelation in which God has graciously given us. Any other, any different attitude thereto is utterly unreasonable. The arrangement of pride, how thankful we should be that the ancient of days condescends to instruct us. Our second reply to the above objection is that in the written revelation from heaven we should fully expect to find much that transcends the gas of our poor earth bound minds. What was the use of God communicating to us only that which we already knew? Nor are the scriptures given to us as a field on which reason may be exercised. What they require are faith and obedience, and faith is not a blind, unintelligible, unintelligible thing, but confidence in its author and assurance that he, that he is too wise to err, too righteous to be unjust, and therefore that he is infinitely worthy of our trust and objection to his holy will. 
just because God's will is addressed to faith, there is much in it which is contrary to nature, much that is most mysterious, much that leaves us wondering. Faith must be tested to prove its genuineness, and God delights to honor faith. Though his word be not written to satisfy curiosity, and though many questions are not there fully answered, yet the more faith be exercised, the fuller is the light granted. God himself is profoundly mysterious. Lo, these are parts of his ways. How little a portion is heard of him. Job 26.14 How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Romans 11.33 We must therefore expect to find the Bible much that strikes us as strange things. Hard to be understand. Second Peter 3.16 the creation of the universe out of nothing at the mere fiat of the Almighty is beyond the grasp of finite mind. Divine incarnation transcends human reason. Grace the mystery of Godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Second Timothy 3.16 That Christ should be conceived and born of a woman who had known no contact with man cannot be accounted for by human reason. The resurrection of our bodies thousands of years after he had gone to death is inexplicable. It is not then most unreasonable to reject the truth of election because human reason cannot fathom it. Second, it is highly unjust. Rebels against supreme sovereign hesitate not to charge him with unrighteousness because he is pleased to exercise his own rights and determine the deity of his creatures. They argue that all men should be dealt with on the same footing, that all should be given an equal opportunity of salvation. They say that God shows mercy unto one and withholds it from another. Such partiality is grossly unfair. To such an objector we reply in the language of holy written name, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel in honor and another in dishonor? Romans 9, 20 and 21, there we leave him. Some of the Lord's own people are disturbed by this difficulty. First, then we would remind them that God's light, First John 1, 5, as well as love, God's ineffably holy as well as infinitely gracious. The Holy One, He abhors all evil, and is the moral governor of His creatures, who becomes Him. To eternally manifest His hatred of sin is the gracious One. He is pleased to bestow favors upon the undeserving and give an everlasting demonstration that He is the Father of mercies. Now, in election, both these designs are unmistakably accomplished in the preterition. Condemnation of the non-elect, God gives full proof of his holiness and justice by visiting upon them the due reward of their iniquities. The foreordination and salvation of his chosen people, God makes a clear display of the exceeding riches of his grace. Suppose that God had willed the destruction of the entire human race, then what? Had that been unjust? Certainly not. There could be no justice when that whatever envisaged upon criminals the penalty of that law which he had defiantly broken but what had then become of God's mercy had not but exorable justice been exercised by an offended God that every descendant of fallen Adam had invitably been consigned to hell 
Now, on the other hand, suppose God had decided to open wide the floodgates of mercy, carry the whole human race to heaven, then what? The wages of sin is death, eternal death. But if every man sinned and none died, what evidence would there be that divine justice was anything more than an empty name? God had saved all sinners. Would not that necessarily accumulate light views of sin if all were taken to heaven? Should we not conclude that this was due us as a right? Well, that's some pretty heavy teaching. And, you know, I can tell you from a long, many years of experience that what Mark has just read causes many people to rail against God you know but the fact remains that God is the potter and we are the clay and the only hope we have is in Christ you know and I have a friend of mine dear brother in Christ his name is Michael Smith and he says that the definition of hope is Christ Christ is the definition of hope you know, and so, anyway, I hope this has been a blessing. May the good Lord be with you today in a special way is my prayer.